Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVN Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVN Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Eric. Um, thank you, and it's great to be joining you, and I'm very honored to introduce our guest today. Uh, Kelly Peters is the founding partner and the CEO of BE Works, a company that she founded with Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar back in 2010. Uh, Kelly has extensive experience in behavioral science, and she's led literally hundreds of experimental projects around the world involving challenges ranging from financial decision-making to health and happiness. Uh, she's a frequent speaker about the value of behavioral insights and scientific thinking. Um, she's a guest. She's been a visiting lecturer at Cornell, Harvard, and Boston University, among others, and she's on the faculty at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Welcome, Kelly. It's really great to have you join us. Uh, it's wonderful to be a part of this. Thank you so much. Kelly, let's start and maybe uh, we could come back to your uh, background and early career. So my first question is, what initially interested you in behavioral science? Um, what interested me first in behavioral science is um, it actually goes back a ways when I was a little girl. My parents got a VCR and it changed everything. There was literally this black box that had this mysterious effect on my family. It turns out my mother was really into old time movies, you know, James Dean, like these classics. And when we got this VCR when I was a kid, everything changed. Um, it, you know, my house became the popular house um, because we had this big screen TV that went with this VCR. And my mom had these parties that were associated with, you know, watching these movies. My dad converted uh, the garage into this giant movie room. And, you know, I, 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 had to, I got to enjoy some popularity because of this piece of technology. And it was wonderful. Uh, movie night became a thing for my family. And it left this question in my mind about how technology, which I don't necessarily understand how technology works, but technology can impact and change behavior and change family dynamics and social dynamics. And that stayed with me. So when I went to university, I still wondered about technology and Growing up through the 80s, I got to see um, the development of personal computers, these kinds of, um, you know, the, the video recording and the development of communication technologies like the Internet. And so when I went to university, I was really interested in exploring and taking an interdisciplinary approach to knowledge. And one of the things I was particularly interested in was the impact that technology would have on society. This led me to uh, my 
first career, which uh, started in the early 90s, looking at how we can build um, internet uh, capabilities for companies and help launch those very, very first dot-com. Like there was a time before everything dot-com existed. And I, I got to be a part of that world. And I uh, met a professor who uh, on the side and, and with his wife had a consulting company and they were looking for somebody who had been thinking about the internet and to help provide training and consulting and advisory services. And um, through his connections, I got to meet very senior business executives who had had esteemed careers, but weren't familiar with the internet. And I had the luxury of teaching them what I knew, but then also learning about how they were seeing the possibility of their industry being transformed. And it all came back to understanding behavior. And so that's been the thread um, that I've just naturally gravitated to. I'd love to say it was all sort of pre-planned, but I've always been interested in changing nature of behavior. And the, my you know, first part of my career was understanding the role that technology had in driving that. And now the second part is understanding the science and the mechanisms behind using choice architecture to, to drive it. Okay, very clear. Uh, was there a particular person, or I have an idea in mind, or idea or project that sparked your interest in behavioral science? Yeah, it's hard. You know, it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what behavioral science is. So, um, actually had a, um, a project that I worked on in the late 90s, which was to um, help build behavioral scoring models for credit risk decision making. And a lot had happened when I first, from, from when I first started exploring internet technologies, which was about providing you know, the, the ability to do transactions. But by the late 90s, I was looking at projects like how do we use technology to do things like augment decision makers in financial services. Historically, bankers would do the decisioning and evaluation of a person's character, for instance, in their willingness to repay a loan. Well, with data, we were able to look at how can we observe that behavior and how can we build empirical models to evaluate that behavior and how can we then bring those um, capabilities online so that we can do online adjudication and allow people to apply for their own mortgages and apply for their own credit cards. So we were doing very groundbreaking, uh, uh, groundbreaking work back then. And there weren't, uh, the typical resources that you can look to when you're building something new, you know, often in business, uh, you, you know, and in science, you have a whole community of peers you can look to, you, you know, stand on the shoulders of giants, competitive landscape, you know, those are, those are, you know, kind of one and the same, right? And when you're, but when you're in the full new paradigm innovation capability, you don't have that much to, le to look to and lean on. Um, but um, one of the areas that, that did provide some utility was in 
was in the area of looking at um, the early studies of, of, uh, of, of risk behavior. And those models in academia were useful to us in business in terms of being able to understand um, how we can build empirical models that let us look at people's behavior in a way that's predictive and let us build the credit scoring adjudication models that we needed in order to be able to augment the decision-making of individual account managers. And so, you know, one of the things, um, this, was a, this was later research, a little bit later research, but looking at, um, you know, people, people that buy this type of, of product in a store are more likely to be um, you know, to default on a credit card product. So you can actually see interesting correlations between someone's preference for, um, I think one of the things that was, was published in a prior article was like Tweety Bird mud flaps on, for a truck. And you know, that particular product has a high correlation to, um, to likelihood to default. And, and that's, you know, that's but one, and, and the information is, is much more uh, rich than, than that and much more sensitive to, you know, now the number of factors that the data gives us reliable guidance and it gives us sometimes unreliable guidance. But that starting point for me was back in the, the late 1990s when, when we needed insight on, on how do we build empirical models for human behavior to help us predict risk. And uh, how did you connect and begin collaborating with someone I think was important for you, Dan Ariely? Yeah, so Dan and I met um, at an event that he had given in, I believe it was 2009. And um, I, had read, I had read Predictably Irrational, and I love that book so much. Um, it's such a wonderful, it's such a wonderful book and the reflection of Dan's character, his sense of humor, his, you know, caring, compassionate observation of, of his own behavior in the world and, and others. And uh, I stood in the long line and this was still early on in, in his, uh, uh, you know, popular career. I stood in the long line with my copy of, of the book. It was a hardback. And I had read that book when I was in Florida on the beach. I had a little lawn, you know, a little beach chair. And I love to put the beach chair right where the water comes up. You know, the waves that kind of tickle your feet and the wave recedes. You know, I'm sitting there reading the book, looking at the ocean, just, you know, in heaven, right? With this wonderful knowledge, this wonderful writing, this wonderful beach in my hometown. And uh, I... <laughs> And, and, I had a, and I had a marker, a felt-tip marker, and I like to, you know, I'm pretty aggressive with books, uh, and, and I apologize to you, know, to, to you successful authors, um, but I tend to be very vicious, and I write all over books, and I had this felt-tip marker, and so I was busy marking away in the book, and I didn't notice this big wave, just this kind of a rogue wave came up and just slapped me in my chair, and it hit the book, and... Like like a actress with too much makeup on, this black you know mascara just covered the pages. The book was soaking wet, filled with you know beach sand, and uh, you know and that that book dried, but that was the book that I presented to Dan 
design. So it was so lumpy and pulpy and it still had grit and the mascara running down the pages basically. And that's what I asked him to sign. And, um, and he said, he wrote, it's good to see a well-read book. <laughs> and, and uh, I invited him out for a beer. And uh, he, uh, I, I was, it was one of those crazy days. It was a work day and I was, I was actually triple booked and, and uh, I used to love to have meetings at the bar downstairs at the bank that I was in. And I used to call it meeting room 1A. And I had a, I had a meeting lined up with um, my like team that I was in. And then I had two other friends uh, at the bank who I love to, you know, talk, talk to about, you know, strategy and the goings on. And, and then I had invited Dan. Well, my, my two friends knew who, who Dan was because they had already read the book as well and were joining me in my efforts of, of helping uh, Royal Bank of Canada get up to speed on behavioral economics. And when I said, I think this guy, Dan, might be joining us for a beer, they're like, no way. And my other team, some of them really hadn't understood yet what was going on with behavioral economics. And so... Uh, when Dan joined, um, we ended up pushing all of the tables together and having a great conversation about behavioral economics. Dan did his little trick with the, uh, he's got the stick and it's a puzzle, and, you know, and he sticks it through your buttonhole and you have to figure out how to undo this, uh, this, this puzzle. And uh, that's, that's where our friendship started. And we were friends for a little while. Great story and uh, with a great dad. Maybe, Scott, we could uh, start talking about the birth of B-Works. Sure, yeah. Well, I may be fast-forwarding a bit here um, from the beginning of your, your friendship with Dan. Um, but yeah, we were really curious about the birth and the vision behind um, the company. Because back in 2010, you know, my recollection at least is Things were starting to happen, um, certainly in academia and perhaps in the public sector, but really it was a very early days with respect to serving um, private sector companies and, and introducing them to behavioral science and behavioral economics. So I was curious, just uh, the, the, the thinking behind it and, and why you decided to make the jump and, and the vision behind it. Yeah, I mean, for, for me, you know, behavioral economics was a journey from studying um, risk, right? Um, and looking at how we can understand the behavior of risk and credit risk. And, and that evolved um, in, in my responsibility at, at the bank to understand other parts of the science of behavior. So I was... Uh, you know, I was I was pushed by my mentors at the bank to, you know, continue the the thinking about um, human behavior, but not just on the credit side of the bank, but to also start to understand um, investing and savings behavior. And again, there was this huge treasure trove of knowledge, and so I always felt so. Um, so I always felt so smart, you know, being able to come to the table with these incredible insights. And they were more satisfying than what we learned from all of the research that we had done on our customers. And I remember I had worked with a colleague who 
had spent so much time and worked so hard on this massive survey of customers. I can't remember now how many she had in there, but it would it would have been a very impressive number. It would have been you know in the in the thousands with this uh, with this survey. It was good. Um, but after all of this work and effort that went into it, we had organized this uh, and I'd help her put together this kind of a lunch and learn on the on the survey. And this is at a big bank with you know very very um, you know smart people. <laughs> and you know as she as she went through the presentation, basically the the conclusion was like there's really nothing new here. You know, people say they want to save more, that bank fees are too high, that they want more convenience. It's like every bank ever, (laughs) when you do any survey ever, we keep finding the same thing. And there's nothing new there when we ask customers what they want. And unfortunately, some of that guidance isn't very helpful for us and misdirects us because if we spend all of our time trying to lower our fees, lower our fees, lower our fees, and not actually help people with the things that they need around advice, around coaching, around driving actual behavior. So it's not lower fees, it's actually helping people be successful with their money. If we just listen to them, we'll never actually get at what they need and what they truly value. And maybe it's much more like a parent, right? It's, you know, there's what my daughter says she wants versus what she needs. And sometimes we need to, we need to play that role. And in the end, which one is more satisfying for them? from their point of view. And that's being set up for that kind of life success. So if we just listen to our customers, we won't, you know, we won't always get the same guidance in the same way my teenage daughter won't volunteer what's what's best for her and tell me, you know, to do those things for her. So so the customer survey stuff didn't, you know, didn't push the boundaries, but the scientific research by psychologists um, actually did. It actually did bring forward uh, so much more uh, value. And so some of um, uh, Tom Gilovich's work, for instance, Why Smart People Make Dumb Money Mistakes. What a delightful book that is. Oh, it should be mandatory reading, I think, for everybody. It should, be, should just be like, oh, welcome to the world. You're 16. Here, read this. You know, you're 21. Read it again. You're 30. Read it again. Um, you know, because it's just so useful in terms of helping understand those biases and that kind of thing. So it was it was um, in around 2008 where th- this this field um, of behavioral economics um, really became known to me as behavioral economics. You know, it was just this weird transition between risk theory and behavioral finance and psychology, um, you know, decision science. It's like, oh, okay, there's actually this other name. There's this other name, which is behavioral economics. And the one that really closed the deal for me, the, 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 the next book that became the big, like, aha, was Nudge. Choice architecture. It's like those two words, choice architecture. It's like, I get it now. It's like, the rest was great for the research and the insights and the why and the how we act. The nudge, it's like, okay, I know we have strategies, we can intervene. But this idea of like combining that into choice architecture was a big aha for me. So, so in 2009, I hired um, a new team called Ideas42. 
to help me uh, with a project at the bank. And I had the good fortune of working with uh, Piyush Tantya, who was part of the founding team of Ideas42, and with uh, Sandhill, Molinathan, and several other uh, folks that are part of that Ideas42 um, you know, uh, collective. And uh, they helped me bring in uh, some of the, the rigor that I needed support on because we didn't have the internal capabilities for thinking about designing a field experiment. And so that building that behavioral economics uh, team and projects became a, a foundation for me. Our, RBC, I'm so lucky, uh, was a place that's very uh, open to all kinds of innovation. So when I wanted to start pushing and promoting behavioral economics, I was working in an environment that was very, very hungry for new insights that were open to, it's like, you want to run an experiment? Sure. You know, you want to run a randomized control trial in, in field, in branches that require this kind of support infrastructure, bring it, what you got? Like I had support for the science of behavioral science. I had, um, people and leaders very, very passionate about the behavioral insights part of behavioral economics who were absolutely on board with the, you know, the new and novel approaches to strategy, you know, from behavioral economics. And so, you know, again, just circling back to Nudge, Nudge was the one that really helped me, you know, think of BE as this three-legged stool. So you've got the you got the heuristics and biases, you know, the decision science. Okay, that's why we are the way we are. Got it. You know, bounded rationality, bounded self-interest. Cool. One leg of the stool. Got it. Nudge, you know, and persuasion, bringing in Cialdini a little bit more directly. Boost, now bringing in Pell Hansen and some of the guys worried about ethics and, you know, kind of that spectrum or system three when we think about augmentation technology. That's all cool. That's our third leg our second leg and our third leg is experimentation. All of this needs to rest upon this uh, foundation of, of rigorous experimentation. So really now starting to map out, well, how do you do this three-legged stool? How do you drag this thing around and stand on it in a big corporation? I was at RBC building out this, uh, building out this process, championing behavioral economics, getting the buy-in, driving that curiosity and then I had a, a rudimentary framework um, that that uh, I ended up meeting um, uh, Nina Mazar. Um, I met two other uh, entrepreneurs, and the five of us came together. Um, we said, "Hey, there's actually a there's actually a, a consulting business um, that that could be born out of this that's exclusively dedicated to behavioral economics." And so that's that's where. The eWorks was was born at my alma mater. Now I think that's a really really interesting and compelling story about the birth of of it, and and there's a lot of paths we could go down. I, I guess one question I'd have is, you now have ten years to look back, I suppose, in which you've been going to many different organizations, working with many different organizations, and I was curious whether um, there are things that have really surprised you. Um, either pleasantly or, or otherwise, about how organizations have um, applied behavioral science or how receptive they've been to some of the messages and some of the ideas that you just spoke about? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important question. Um, 
I think looking back over the last 10 years, I think the most exciting thing is seeing the joy on people's faces when an experiment finds something works and they have the data, they have the evidence that they didn't have. So especially when it's like something quirky that nobody really thought would work and they have the evidence now that it did. And it's like, it's just this incredibly powerful thing. It's sort of like, I've discovered fire. You know, you've just, it's like, everyone's like, wow. And, and it's amazing. Like, ev- like having evidence, it's, it's, it's the smoking gun for strategy. It's, it's, it's so powerful. And to be able to go to your colleagues in an organization with like, we ran this like rigorous experiment and we have this confidence behind this thing. And seeing the journey, like all of the heartache that it takes sometimes to get an organization to that point, like the level of process maturity that's required to do this stuff well and to do it right is very, very intense. There's so many temptations. Um, Professor, philosopher, scientist uh, Nancy Cartwright is is uh, someone who I have the utmost respect for. And she is very demanding on understanding the limits of what we can infer from even our most rigorous test of causality. What works where? How do we know? And when we bring organizations from the most basic levels of A-B testing to actually starting to build mature capabilities. It's a, it's a transformation. It's a transformation for the organization, but it's also a transformation for the individual because once you see the world through a scientific lens, you know, you feel, you know, you're lit, you're, you feel enlightened. You, you can't go back. You see the world differently. You ask questions differently. So seeing that happen over the last 10 years, um, has, has been profoundly rewarding. Seeing uh, clients squeal almost with delight of like, I'm a scientist now. I'm a scientist now. Like that's incredible. I feel like we're winning a little bit when we do that. And, um, and having that person, you know, fine, they do their marketing strategy better. That's cool. You know, better products. That's cool. But it changes everything around um, not only having a sense of purpose better for the customer, like now we really understand or have a way of understanding how to help serve our customers better. But also, I think we've inoculated one more person against snake oil salesmanship, be it in consulting, um, be, it in, uh, be it in the world, when, when, our, when our political and policy decisions um, need to be made on the basis of, of evidence. So I feel like we've inoculated one more good citizen with, with science every time we, we have a good project in, in the business world or in, the, or in our government services clients as well. So, so that's the most um, um, exciting and su- always surprising and always rewarding thing. 
Okay, Kelly, one of our uh, commonalities is that we both focus largely on applying behavioral science in the private sector. Uh, what have you found to be the key differences and challenges in working with private sector organizations as opposed to governments or uh, NGOs? The key difference? Um, the ability to do experiments in the uh, governmental world is still is still very difficult. It's hard enough in the business world. It's even more difficult in the, the government world. Like you can't even say experiment, right? Like, like in some countries you can't even say that word. There's just such a sensitivity to it. Like if you can't even use the language, you know, a, a manipulation. Oh, that sounds evil. Like, <laughs> uh, so, so that's, that's the tip of the iceberg. It took me, it took me a little while to understand um, why the East framework was so damn simple, like, and the mind space framework was so damn simple. It pissed me off. I was like, why do these guys have this simple framework? And I'm talking about David Halpern and the bit team and, uh, and, and some of the great folks that uh, were actually the, the engineers of, of this. And it, it, I finally understood when I, when I had a chance to reread David Halpern's uh, book recently uh, and that journey from mind space to East was, was articulated in there. And uh, he's got, well, I feel like grabbing the book right now because I, I, I marked, well, of course I marked the section, not using a felt tip marker anymore though, <laughs> uh, where, where he talked about um, really it's because of the championing and the difficult job of the pedagogy of scientific thinking is, is really what so much of our generation needs to do in behavioral science. We're doing a lot of the heavy lifting of the teaching, the championing, teaching the frameworks, teaching the how. It's not just going in and solving the problem. And sure, we do some projects like that where there isn't as much stakeholder engagement it's not as rewarding as the ones where we're actually doing the, that teaching. The difficulty though, insofar as there's differences is in the ability to um, have the infrastructure that's required to build and sustain an experimentation culture, because you need things like robust data science, you need measures, that are reliable and valid. You need data that has integrity. You need technical infrastructure and process. There's lots of boring nuts and bolts that need to go underneath that. And it's harder in some environments than others because those things are, are complicated and expensive to build. But a lot can be done through that teaching phase, through simpler experiments, through simpler frameworks. And so that's now why I understand that we have things like East framework is because there's so much just, there's actually so much transformation that happens with that simple framework that, um, uh, that, that needs to be done. So we're the generation of, of, of uh, we have to accept it, but we're the, we're the generation that's the champions of the, of the application of behavioral science. And I'm hoping that 
as more and more organizations, you know, chief behavioral officer, you know, these kinds of uh, certification, these kinds of things that we're starting to, to talk about means that we are not going into the organization teaching what BE is, finding a nice demonstration project, solving a thing, whether it's on our own or, or collect or slowly and collaboratively, but instead we're, we're, we get to now um, work with advanced internal capabilities doing advanced and more complex uh, projects. Okay, thanks. And where do you see the biggest untapped opportunities in terms of applying behavioral science in the private sector? I think that there's, oh, there's so much to do. Um, <laughs> so I agree. There's <laughs> so much to do. I mean, the big, the big, 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 big amount of work that needs to still be done is on the awareness and the education phase and the building of the infrastructure around behavioral economics. Like, We still have years of work to do, uh, you know, collectively in industry, let alone with any client that's already been doing this for a few years. There's, there's still so much work to do on that, on that first, on that first wave. Um, but I think, you know, the next, the next wave, and it's funny, I, I should mention, you know, philosophically, you know, BE works, we, we, We made a very intentional commitment to focus on experimentation, philosophy of science, method, infrastructure in this first wave of our company and in the first generation of projects that we do with our clients, even though talking about, you know, the nudge or, you know, the biases and the behavioral insights part was always super sexy. That's the sexy part. People want the The quirky ways humans are weird. Like people want that stuff. But the real transformation comes in the application of scientific thinking as a, as a way of doing things in the world. We're at a point where we're able to start going back to the behavioral insights questions because it's like our clients, it's like we've got, we, yep, we know experiments, we've got it, randomized control tests, you know, multifactorial, da, 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 we've got that. Uh, we've got reliable, valid measures that have taken us a couple of years to develop. You know, those the infrastructure is now in place. Now we get to go back and actually look at, you know, what are the most interesting questions about human behavior? You know, how fundamentally do people think about risk in this context? How, how does trust, you know, genuinely matter in terms of helping drive marketing? Um, what is the role? of social media in informing decision-making. It's almost like we can kind of go back to the most interesting questions about human behavior and explore those with companies because now that thinking and that is, is mature enough to understand, oh, if we say we want to increase trust, we need to recognize that we need to have an operational definition that's measurable. Now we can test these strategies against that and we know, we know what we're seeing, we know what we're observing. So to me, the next biggest wave after that, you know, BE is this kind of, you know, awareness. Here's how it works. Here's what we need to build. And now on top of that infrastructure, it's let's get on with the job of the really cool questions and bringing all that together. And what advice would you give to businesses and practitioners within organizations to help them infuse behavioral science thinking and learning within their organization? 
Yeah, we're at a we're at a really interesting crossroads. It's it's reminds me of the same exact experience that we had in the mid '90s when companies were trying to build this, you know, everything.com. They had no idea like who to hire. Uh, I don't know if you remember webmaster, right? That was a title. That was a role. But people didn't know webmaster from database administrator to designer, all these terms, all these roles. Well, they come with different skills and capabilities that people are able to to deliver. It's uh it's you know, it's it's no different than, you know, just just built a house. Like an electrician does this and a plumber does that. They're very different things. And you wouldn't expect an electrician to understand the pipes and you wouldn't understand expect the plumber to understand the wires. So they're very, very different kinds of roles. And in the mid-90s, when we did this with the internet, yeah, we started, you know, I was part of a, a nonprofit industry association that wanted to create, uh, you know, certified roles. You know, here's the list of skills and capabilities. Here's the tests you take. This is, you know, your apprentice to, to master level. Now we can put put you over here, put that role over there. And we know, and then we can help people know, do you, you know, do you need a plumber or do you need an electrician? We don't have that right now in our field. And there's some different organizations that are trying to, to pull together uh, that kind of work. BSPA is involved in uh, supporting an initiative uh, doing that. There's a couple other efforts as well that are underway um, to, to do that. And and it's incredibly important because there's there's tremendous appeal in these quirks of, of human behavior and profiting on the the you know the application of that. But the thing is, anyone can read the popular books and talk about oh loss aversion oh you know oh social proof that's a great one oh social proof you know oh I know all about social proof now and and they're. They're, they're employing these things without, first of all, a deeper understanding of what we actually already know about them that goes past the popular press. Uh, they're implementing them without uh, humility of recognizing that they're very sensitive. It's very nuanced. We don't have, you know, silver bullets and cannonballs in, in, our, in our tool set, that the real power is actually in the rigor of experimentation. The real power that we have to offer is introducing that systematic thinking around the process of strategy formulation. That's the biggest thing that we have. It's not the, oh, look at this interesting bias, oh, look at this interesting nudge. It's not that part. And so organizations need to understand that we are still very much in this heavy lifting phase to build that infrastructure and capability. And that's why at BE Works, uh, I only consider hiring people that have. Um, uh, successfully completed our higher metrics platform. So it's it's a multi-step process that lets us evaluate the skills and capabilities and collaborative nature of individuals uh, who who can make it to the to the hiring. And and that's that's meant um, to date we we've only hired um, PhDs who have generally uh, also accumulated you know significant postdoc experience running labs, publish papers. And so we're hiring uh, these, these very uh, uh, thoughtful mavericks um, escaping from academia to do real world uh, you know, science in the real world. 
but how on earth would a, you know, a business person with no training in science, they haven't been going through these books, understand the difference between a guy who has wonderful stories about the quirks of human behavior, you know, ready to, you know, allegedly run these research experiments versus, you know, hiring a team, interdisciplinary team of, you know, senior scientists uh, doing the same project. So, so that lack of understanding of the, of the necessary skills. Um, but we, and we see that, we see that every day, you know, how do you know how to hire a good electrician? We still haven't figured that out. And we've had electricity for over a hundred years in our, in our homes. So how to hire a good, uh, and it's not just hiring. This is even the silly thing. It's like how to hire, you know, how to hire a behavioral scientist. You can't hire one person and expect one person to be able to do championing, teaching, opportunity spotting, design an experiment, run it. You know, you, it's even the even the initial framing right now is uh, is misguided. So, so. It's, um, it's, you know, we're still at a stage where it's, um, it's hard to hire the skills that we need. It's like, uh, it's in the early days. Um, and uh, so, so it does make it more difficult to know uh, who to hire. Okay, one key topic is the question uh, uh, of the ethical way to apply behavioral science and uh, especially in private sector. So what is your point of view to help practitioners to make an ethical use of behavioral insight? Yeah, I, th I think that's some of the, the work uh, to answer that question of the ethical application of behavioral science. I mean, it's, it's, already been, it's already been done a few times. It's been done, um, you know, the question's been answered by... First of all, the advertising sector, you know, those questions about what is um, misleading advertising, misrepresentative advertising, uh, unfair advertising, targeting minors advertising. There's been self-regulation and industry regulation as well as regulatory intervention and consequence in the advertising world. So there's already so much to learn from there. The other place has been uh, in the work that um, our legal teams have done in corporate social responsibility. We've learned so much about fairness and in hiring and compensation and best practices for uh, commerce and trade. We've learned a lot about what's right and what's wrong. So we've got a lot to, to look at there. The, the place I think specifically in our world has been uh, coming from philosophers, not, not, from, not, from, uh, not from behavioral scientists, not that I want to say that, that, that scientists don't think about ethics. Of, of course they think about ethics. Um, but someone who's been coming, you know, really spent a lot of time thinking about this has been uh, Pell Hansen and the work that they've done on Boost. And I, I, think, that they, I think that they go too hard against... Um, understanding the power and need of, of persuasion or so-called system one uh, tactics or interventions um, because not everybody wants a decision aid for, for everything. Um, just point me the right, point me the right way or, you know, what is recommended by authority or what is, you know, appropriate for somebody in my peer group. That's all I need. I, I don't need the whole decision aid to boost my, you know, 
you know, uh, reasoning faculties in, in this instance, like I'm cool with the persuasion. But he's done a, he's done a great job of, of, you know, carving out a new path for, you know, what I, I have, um, you know, conveniently, albeit at a cost, I get it, but I conveniently kind of, you know, there's, there's these like, for me, there's this like bin of system two interventions and, you know, the booth, you know, sits, sits proudly there. So then, so then the question is, okay, well, when, you know, just to go back to what you've asked, it's like, well, when do you know which bin to pull from? When is it okay to use persuasion? And, and when do you not want to sort of rely on persuasion and actually, you know, grab somebody by both shoulders, shake them, set them down and say, we need to take the time to go through this thing. You know, when, when, when is it right? And, and what are the criteria that we should, that we should use? Well, you know, it depends is obviously the, the shortcut answer to, to that. And it would depend on things like how consequential um, are, is the trade-off to the individual? Uh, who's the beneficiary of that choice? Is the beneficiary the company or is the company, you know, have their interests aligned to the customer on the customer making the best choice for them? So, if we know that the interests are already aligned and we really want to make that customer make the best decision, but we recognize that they don't have the time, the energy, the effort to, to engage in that full process, then it's okay to use these other tactics. You know, it's generally just like, you know, it's again, it's like, it's like with my daughter, it's like, well, because I said so. And there's times where that needs to be, you know, a, 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 it's a good response. It's the best response. It's because I said so. And then there's other times it's like, well, let's sit down. We need to talk. We need to talk about, you know, the risks, the consequences, the experience, the facts, et cetera, and go on and let's have a whole education about a particular choice. And that's great. But I can't do that with every single decision that confronts my daughter. So sometimes I just need to say, because I said so. Kelly, you, you may be aware uh, the behavioral scientists recently asked the behavioral science community to write short uh, excerpts uh, about their vision of the future of behavioral science, behavioral economics. And I was curious about your vision of the future of the field. Where do you see things heading, uh, both perhaps for yourself and BE Works and more generally? Yeah, it was a great, it was a great piece that they did. Uh, I love, I love the imagining the next decade. That's what it is. They called it, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. So I. So as I think about um, and reflect on imagining the next decade of behavioral science, um, that was a piece that was published in uh, the behavioral scientist uh, journal that Evan Nesterak puts together. I think it was a wonderful set of uh, essays that they they compiled, and I had the had the pleasure of of being a part of that. So to answer your question, um, you know, what's, what's next? And, and I talked about complexity, you know, just as I've talked about in this call, it's, it's about complexity. We're able to go beyond where we've been in terms of the, uh, you know, front, you know, top level, top level experiments to getting more and more ambitious in terms of the level of data that's available, the reliability, validity of those measures, 
we can run, you know, cross-channel um, experiments. Like that's, it's the complexity of it all. And it's also recognizing that, um, you know, I, I wrote this, um, I wrote this essay, um, BE is not as simple as ABC. And in it, I talk about uh, how we need to get uh, much more advanced in the real world, in the, in the research phase of, of our projects. We need to get much more robust in uh, playing with exploratory research and developing exploratory hypotheses and to um, go much further with the types of interventions that we're doing. Where, for instance, um, just to kind of you know keep keep a theme going here, but much uh, much more uh, multifaceted research, for instance, on the role of social in influencing our decisions and having much more patience with being much deeper with a particular set of questions. So, so for instance, um, if I was a CPG company, I would want to know every single thing that there is to possibly know about the way other people influence our perception of brand and our behavior with that particular uh, company and its suite of products or services. So, so that complexity is not just with experimentation and cross-channel experimentation, but it's much more complexity, rigor, depth, patience with wanting to know everything that there is to know about each of these facets of human behavior. So I'm hoping that we're able to do that as this teaching phase is done, this championing phase is done, this infrastructure phase is done, that now we can continue to move, um, you know, with, with the hiring phase is done and getting the right champions and cheerleaders embedded in the organization, that we can really build out uh, internal capabilities so that companies actually have their own internal labs and we're, we're finally getting clients asking us, hey, how do we build a BE Works inside? And that's where we're going to get to that much greater level of, of complexity and advance human knowledge. I think we could uh, wrap up. Uh, uh, maybe you can share, uh, Kelly, with us any project or challenge that uh, are on your mind. Uh, yeah, a big one on my mind is how we manage uh, COVID-19. Okay, so that's a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> and ha, top of mind. And, and I, you know, one of the things that's, you know, there's so many different research avenues and things about human behavior that we're learning from COVID-19. I mean, we've got a project on on helping reduce uh, food waste. It was a project that started with uh, Unilever before the pandemic. Pandemic said, oh boy, everything's changing. People are stockpiling, they're not eating out, like everything's changing. And, uh, uh, you know, we uh, developed a collaboration around, well, why don't we study people's uh, behavior during the pandemic? And in particular, let's see what new habits are, are forming. What, what are the good ones? What are the bad ones? And then let's recalibrate to see the good behaviors. What can we keep? The bad behaviors. What do we need to What do we need to deal with? Yeah, you know, we're finding some really neat things. Like we're finding some neat things around people doing a much better job of um, of actually cooking for themselves, for their family. Uh, people have gotten bored 
of their own cooking. And so people are learning how to cook new things. These are, these are wonderful uh, things in our lifestyle. Um, we see that people are doing a much better job of uh, inventory management in their kitchen. That's cool, you know. Um, people are cleaning out the old spices and, uh, you know, getting much more strategic about uh, the kitchen and taking care of themselves and their, and their families. Uh, we see much better intentionality when people shop. Um, we see some complexity now around uh, people changing their shopping behavior based not on old factors like convenience or availability of particular goods. Um, and, you know, shopping behaviors have been complex and multifaceted before. You would go to your Whole Foods, for instance, for certain products that you wanted. You would go to your mainstream grocery store for other products that you want. You'd go to your big uh, bulk discount store for other products that you wanted in bulk. And so people had these multifaceted channel relationships in the past that made modeling complex. But now we have a new dimension, which is uh, how people feel about safety. And which of these environments do they feel more safe in? And uh, that has required a whole other level of, of um, commerce planning that hadn't been in the mix before. So, so, I mean, so there's that side of what we're, of what we're doing right now. And those are, those are amazing uh, projects, uh, learning about human behavior with our clients. Um, but the other thing that I'm personally interested in understanding more of is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an American and I'm a Canadian. I spent half my life in the U.S. My family are, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a classic American mutt. You know, my, my father comes from Italian immigrants, you know, kiss, kiss the land, Ellis Island, off the boat Italian. And my mother's side is Hatfield, you know, hillbillies, Appalachian Mountains, the whole nine yards, like Hatfield. And so as someone who spent the last 25 years in Canada and, and the first, uh, first half in, in the United States, um, it's, made me, it's made me sensitive to the difference in perception around freedom versus unity. And... Uh, we both in, in both countries, so, so the United States just had the 4th of July, which is a celebration of independence, you know, and Canada just had its Canada Day on July 1, which is actually a commemoration of unification of independent uh, provinces and came together to form Canada. So in the U.S., we have this celebration of freedom and autonomy. And in Canada, we have a celebration of coming together in unity. The response socially has been very, very different to COVID-19, like en masse, not by everyone, but en masse. And I'm very curious about this issue of people perceiving that adherence to public health guidelines is a is a is a is a is a violation of one's freedom and not recognizing that it's life liberty and the pursuit of happiness not life freedom and the per, and the pursuit of happiness and there's a difference between freedom and liberty freedom is about individual autonomy liberty is about the responsible use of one's freedom 
so as not to impose upon anyone else. And so I'm very interested in understanding where that that threshold is to help people protect and celebrate their freedom, but in a way that's actually recognizing that the United States was built on the principle of liberty. And there's a, there's a unification in there, and that's been lost. And I want to understand that psychology better in a way that can help people embrace that, that freedom that is respectful of other people's freedom as well, including the right to their life. Great topic. Is there anything, uh, Kelly, you uh, would like to leave our listeners with, perhaps uh, uh, where they can find out more about you and your work? Um, please uh, look at BE Works on the different social media channels. Uh, we just uh, launched a, our own uh, podcast type thing. It's, it's, ours is very basic uh, from a technology perspective compared to what, uh, what, what you guys have built. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, ours is the BE Works conversation series, and I've had a chance to have conversations with um, people like Dan Ariely and Nina Mazar and David Fizarro, my partners, of course. Um, but we've also talked to uh, Paul Bloom and um, Dave Rend, and we've got a, a whole host of, of other um, amazing guests. So I'd love for people to check that out. The, um, we're on LinkedIn and we're on Twitter, and I'm on Twitter as well. And then we've got uh, and then we've got the beworks.com that that points to some of these resources. Be good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.